We're continuing through the letters of Peter, First and Second Peter, and our sermon text this morning, as we continue through that, is in First Peter two eighteen through twenty five. First Peter two eighteen through twenty five. Hear God's word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we do come before you now and we ask that you would again work in us as your word is proclaimed, that your spirit would move upon your people and speak the words of life and truth to them. Use your word to strengthen the faith of your people, to uh, engage them with your gospel. And Lord, for those who know you not, those who still wander, we ask that you would draw them to yourself, that you would make clear the evidences of your grace in their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we continue this morning through this section of First Peter, where he's laying out to the believers in what is now modern-day Turkey, the region of Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, uh, and he's laying out to them how they are to live for the glory of God in a society that absolutely despises them. And he does that by reminding them of who they are in Christ and the living hope that belongs to them in Jesus. And in doing this, as we walk through this, we learn how God calls all his children, all his people from every part of the world in every age to live faithfully with the hope of the gospel in their hearts in a world that is many times hostile towards God's people. And so a couple of weeks ago, we saw how believers are to live in response to human government or civil powers, even corrupt ones and unjust ones and unrighteous ones. And we saw that Christians are to live peaceably through the peace of the gospel by resting in the fact that they are free in the grace of God. We obey authority even when it does not deserve that honor or respect, so as long as we are not violating God's ultimate authority over us. 
And that idea of being peaceable or being subject to authority carries on into our text this morning. But it does it in a way that probably makes us feel a little more uncomfortable than even the previous section, the previous few verses. Because Peter here is talking about slaves. When he says servants, it is slaves being subject to their masters. And a world where we understand that slavery is morally evil, we wonder then, why didn't Peter just tell the slaves, overthrow your masters? And why didn't he call the church at this moment to abolish the practice of slavery? And we know from the Bible that slavery is in fact wrong. It is sinful. It is evil. It is contrary to God's established order in creation. Slavery is a grave offense against other people because it attacks directly the fact that all are created in God's own image and thus have dignity and value. And that principle from natural, God's natural law is actually codified in the laws of the Old Testament to Israel. If you go to Exodus 21.16, you find the Bible does condemn slavery, where it says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's a pretty severe penalty. So why would Peter then tell Christian slaves to be subject to their masters And not only the good and the gentle ones, but also the unjust. Why would he do that? And how can we, as believers living in the world that we live in, where thankfully slavery is fading into the background of history, at least this kind of slavery, uh, what can we learn from this text of Scripture that feels so far removed from our experience in this world? Well, there's actually a lot that we can learn, and there's much that we need to learn, even as we encounter a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel. In fact, we need Peter's words here if we truly believe the gospel is God's ultimate answer to all sin and evil and suffering. So to understand it, we need to go back then and consider who these slaves or servants were in Peter's world. And what we know is that slaves or servants were the lowest of the low in society in that world. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world was both similar and yet different in comparison to what we usually think of today. Slavery was a commonplace. It was very much part of of the socioeconomic system of the day. The economy was run on the backs of slaves. And people became slaves in different ways. Most were born into it by this period of time. Others were prisoners of war, and thus they became slaves of whoever conquered them. As Rome expanded its power uh, through its military conquests, many peoples that were conquered, functioned as slaves throughout the empire. Others became slaves in the way that we think of slavery when we look at our own historical context in American history. They were kidnapped from their homeland and sold in a slave market, the very thing that we saw condemned in Exodus 21. And still others sold themselves 
into slavery. You say, well, why would a person do that? Well, you have to understand in that time, if you were facing economic hardship, it probably meant you were going to perish. You would die and those in your household, in your family. And so for many poorer people, they would sell themselves in servitude to a wealthier family to better their lives. And they were looking for, uh, they would promise to, to help in the home or in the fields or in business in exchange for things like shelter and food and clothing and even medical care. And slaves worked and served in a, a variety of different ways. Some were very harsh and difficult, especially those who worked in the mines, pulling the iron out to to drive Rome's war machine. Others, though, were professionals. They were doctors. They were teachers. They were managers. They were in charge of entire estates. Some were artists. Some were musicians. Peter here uses a word that often meant a household slave. That's why it gets translated servant in many English translations. In fact, some slaves held positions of power within a house, managing the state, and they even owned their own slaves. So you had this hierarchy. And you can begin to see then how this system of slavery in the Greco-Roman world was very much part of regular life. And then you consider the fact of how small and infant the church was at this time. It would be very difficult to overthrow the institution outright. But Peter does speak against it, as we're going to see in a moment. He does it in a very subtle way. Slavery was so much part of life, though, that slaves were often talked about in the Greco-Roman world in what were known as household codes. A household code was usually a set of instructions or rules that was meant to order and guide an entire household from the head of the house to the wives and children and finally down to the slaves. And many of these historical household codes from Greek and Roman writers, they exist to the present day. So much so that when we look at them, we see the common patterns and grammar and syntax, and we can look at what Peter is writing and understand that these instructions are actually a household code. But as Peter writes, he writes in a very different way than those Greek and Roman philosophers. He, in fact, writes in such a way that the instruction that he gives to Christian slaves is meant to be an apologetic for the gospel and actually condemn the ungodly social structures of his day. Peter directly addresses slaves. He says there in verse 18, servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He's speaking directly to them, not to their masters, not to anyone in authority over them, but directly to the slaves themselves. And none of You can look at this. None of the other Greek or Roman authors of these household codes would even think of doing that. In fact, when they gave their instructions, you know who they addressed? 
the masters, the head of the house. They didn't even write the instructions for wives or children directly to them. They instead gave it to whoever was the head of the house. And they wrote that way because it reflected of what they thought about people like slaves or wives or women. They thought they were incapable of understanding and receiving the instruction. They did not want to dignify their lives in any way. They were considered to be inferior to free men. But here, Peter bypasses the masters. And why does he do that? Because of what he said earlier about freedom in Christ. All people, slave and free, men and women, the elderly and children, they are all equal in Christ. Jesus changes everything. It doesn't matter what the world says about your socioeconomic position. In Christ, you are all one. You are all the same. You are all God's chosen people. You are all His royal priesthood, His holy nation. Nobody is above another in the citizenship of God's kingdom. Christ is the head of His church, and all people are under Him and are equally a son or a daughter of God our loving Father. And so by addressing the slaves directly, Peter is ascribing to them a dignity that their society and their social status did not. And they needed to hear that because slaves were at that bottom rung of the social ladder. And we know that when people suffer, when, when the world suffers and a society suffers, it is those who are the lowest that suffer the most. Lowly people have the most to lose when they suffer. And we know that Peter's audience was facing suffering. That's why he's writing this letter to them, to to give them this, this hope. And so the Christian slaves whom Peter was addressing were suffering the hardest. They had nowhere to run, no recourse to fall back upon when they, they suffered for their faith. Now, much of the hostility in society at that time to the people Peter writing, was writing to wasn't organized state persecution. It wasn't uh, probably imprisonment yet at that time. That was coming. Rather, it was economic and social ostracization. And now if a wealthy Christian landowner or a farmer perhaps owned his own property and he was feeling cut off from society. Perhaps people refused to buy his product, his crop. He'd be more likely to find other means to support himself and his family, his household. He had things he could fall back on. But a Christian slave, especially if he was a slave, he was the only Christian in that household, he had nowhere to turn when he suffered. He had nowhere to turn if he was cut off or hurt or beaten or abused because of his faith. He or she depended completely upon their master. Christianity was viewed as a a challenge to the established order of the Greco-Roman world. And so a slave who, who became a believer was held suspect by many a master. They looked at them as a potential threat to their own house's well-being, their own economy. And so some of them would treat them 
cruelly. He would make life hard or difficult to such an extent that Christian slaves in his home would suffer, as Peter says here, for doing good, for actually doing the right thing, they would suffer. Now, of course, not all masters were like that. Peter acknowledges that. He says there, there are some who are good and gentle. That is to say, they were, they were kindly and just, uh, forbearing and compassionate. In fact, there were masters who, who considered the slaves part of their family. Remember, they, they thought a little differently than we did. They viewed this as a, a, a whole household structure. And so there were those who were kind and compassionate. But there were many others who were unjust, as Peter says. They were harsh. They were cruel, crooked, and immoral. And it was these unjust masters that caused so much pain and suffering to the believing slaves. Because the lowliest people often experience the most pain and sorrow when they suffer unjustly. They are vulnerable targets for cruelty and abuse. And so what could the Christian slaves do? Especially in an institution that just wasn't going to go away overnight. It was so widespread and so ingrained into society. What could they do? Well, Peter says, don't fight back. He says, don't start a revolt. That would have been devastating. But they were to be subject, as he says, to their masters. And if they suffered for their faith, to endure it by the grace of God. And here's why. It is because through the the quiet spirit of patience flowing from their trust in the living hope, in Jesus, in the inheritance that is theirs. It is that quiet spirit of patience that comes from trusting in Christ that would be the very weapon that tears down the evil, evil institution of slavery in their society. And if slaves, who are at the lowest level of the societal scale of that day, could do it, then all those Christians to whom Peter was writing could certainly do that as well. You see, it's an argument from the least to the greatest. Now, while all believers had much social well-being to lose because of their faith in Jesus, the believing slaves had the most to lose. So if they could patiently endure unjust suffering because of their faith, then everyone in the church could. And we must ask the question then as we look at this, how much more then must you and I, when we face discrimination of this anti-Christian culture in which we live, how much more ought we to endure it with patience, trusting in our living hope, continuing to rest in the promises of God to us in Jesus Christ? Peter gives us a powerful reason why the believing slaves in his day and indeed all believers from all time, including us, should endure sorrow, the sorrow of unjust suffering. And that is because this, enduring suffering for righteousness is rewarded with the smile of God. We read in verses 19 through 20, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He says that twice. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God when you what? When you endure unjust suffering, suffering that comes upon you because of your faith, because you have been living a life that glorifies God. And so what does he mean by it being a gracious thing? Well, he's talking about the reward of your faith. I mean, notice a couple things here that make this evident. First, he, he asks that rhetorical question. What credit is it if when you sin and you are beaten for it and you endure that? I mean, the answer is none. There is no credit. There is no honor in that. I mean, sin's consequences are suffering and sorrow. You're getting what you deserve. When evil is justly and rightly punished, nobody thinks that the one who's receiving that punishment is a hero because of their evil actions. They're getting what God's law demands. They're getting the, the consequences of their sinful choice. They're not demonstrating any commitment to God, any faithfulness to Him, any concern for His honor and glory. One of the things we saw earlier in First Peter is that Christians are called by God out of the darkness of sin and into the light so that they might proclaim his manifold excellencies to the world. And the way we do that, as Peter explains, is through the conduct of our lives. Remember 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That conduct is the doing good we see in verse 19. It is living in the light of the gospel, living in a way that glorifies God, living peaceably, resting in the freedom of God's grace. Even when we are treated unjustly and sorrow and suffer at the hands of others. That endurance of suffering unjustly, proclaims to the world God's excellencies. Why? Because it's telling the world, no, I am still committed to Christ above all things. I am willing to suffer if need be for my faith. You cannot take that from me. I will continue to follow Jesus. And that is why Peter says it is a gracious thing when he says, mindful of God, that is, consciously aware of who God is and what He is doing and His righteousness that we endure for doing the right thing. So faith in Christ that remains faithful to Him, even through unjust suffering, is rewarded with the smile of heaven. And that is very much persevering in faith. You see, when you trust Jesus as your Savior, it isn't a one-time thing. You don't just pray some prayer and then now Jesus is your Savior. Faith is faithful faith. It's staying committed to Him through your life. And if you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you keep believing Him. You keep resting on the grace of the gospel and keep living in a way that proclaims His excellencies even if you suffer for it. 
And so this here, these words of Peter, is a call to not abandon the faith, but to remain faithful even in the middle of a very hard and difficult situation. And the only way they can do that is because they have already been reminded of that living hope that is theirs. They know that this is but temporary. It is but passing. It is but a moment. And yet there is coming a reward the graciousness of God that will never fade. Which is why Peter's instructions to the slaves here is so powerful for all believers. Because again, we, hear, we, we see those people that are at the bottom of the societal ladder and for that they suffer the most for their commitment to Christ, and yet they are not abandoned by God, but He sees them in their sorrow and He rewards their faithfulness with his gracious smile, with his favor. And so one day, all those believing slaves who suffered this way, they would hear the voice of God say to them, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your Lord as their sorrow ceases and the only thing they know is the joy of the Lord. And if slaves can do that, how much more than those who are economically free? I mean, we are facing a time right now where certainly the shadows of hostility are are getting darker and darker and longer day by day. The pressure against those who seek to be faithful to Christ is increasing to conform to the popular religion of the day, a religion that is increasingly becoming more hateful toward God's wisdom and His law. We used to say and talk about, well, we live in a post-Christian world in the West. But now, I think it's fair to say we live in an anti-Christian world, at least the Christianity that is laid out for us in God's world, Word. And for that, some people are starting to suffer unjustly for doing good, for being faithful to Christ. No, they aren't facing imprisonment or death, but persecution doesn't start with that. It never has, never does. Persecution starts with the little things, the subtle things that make life more difficult. The social ostracization because you will not conform to the ideals of the world. Instead, you hold forth the truth of God's law when it comes to things like marriage and gender and life. It comes in the form also of of economic difficulty because you won't conform to your company's policies which run contrary to God's revealed word. It is the little things. And yet if slaves in Peter's world who had it worse were called to remain faithful, how much more are we today to be faithful to Christ, to keep believing? For when we are faithful, and if we suffer for it, we are rewarded with the smile of heaven. And so the question we ask them, well, how do you do that? Especially if you were a slave in Peter's day. Okay, I get it. 
How am I going to do this? How do I remain faithful to Christ when I'm suffering like this? How do I keep my allegiance to Him? Well, Peter tells us in our text in verse 21, he says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. How do you do it? Well, simply, you write the gospel upon your heart by looking to Jesus, the Son of God. It's that simple. Peter points us to Jesus as our example. And that that word translated example is really interesting in verse 21. It's a Greek word, upo, graman. And it's literally an instrument that was used to teach people or children, especially how to write. It was like a stencil or a pattern of letters, usually the Greek alphabet. And they would follow it or trace over it in an an effort to memorize how to write those letters. And it's similar to, at least when I was in school, they, they still taught us cursive. I don't know if they do that anymore. I've been told they don't. But when you had to learn to write in cursive, I remember we were given these sheets um, with dotted lines, and it would have the letters of the alphabet on there in cursive letters, and they were dotted letters. And the idea was you just had to sit there tracing the letter A over and over and over again. And, you know, I was never very good at it and then would get bad grades. I do remember that. Nightmares about it. But that was the idea behind an upogramon. It was this line, this pattern that you followed. And yet, even that, it's hard to catch the full essence of the example of Christ suffering in that little word and in that illustration. Because Jesus is far more than just a pattern to follow, a model or a paradigm. It is Jesus' suffering for us that actually gives value and dignifies our suffering for Him. It is Jesus' suffering on the cross that that, that makes the reward of God's favor for our faithful endurance even possible. Because it is only through Christ that the letters of the gospel are traced upon our hearts and lives. Notice that Peter says, First here, to this you have been called to this faithfulness in the face of suffering. To this you have been called. He's, he's pointing people back to the grace of God, the gracious, sovereign calling of God to the fact that He calls His people and makes them His possession. And only after reminding them of God's gracious calling of His redemption in their life does He say then, Follow the example of Christ faithfully. So if we are to endure unjust suffering, we need to look upon Jesus. And when we do, we find those contours of the gospel to guide us. And there's three things he specifically points us to when he tells us to look to Jesus as our example. And the first is to see who Jesus is. Verses 22 and 23, again, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And Jesus is the sinless son of God. He is 100% God. 
therefore being perfectly holy, having never sinned, and he's 100% man. He has a a physical body, a, a human mind and spirit like us. So he is the only person, the only human who lived on this earth and never sinned, even though he suffered the ultimate injustice upon the cross. He was slandered by the Sanhedrin and reviled by the Romans. He was mocked by the thieves and the crowd, and he did not return a single bitter word. He was beaten and did not strike back. Nails were driven into him, and he did not fight against his tormentors. Instead, he trusted the wisdom of the Father and the will of him who judges justly. He knew that he had to suffer these things to bring redemption for all who are his. And so he willfully subjected himself to the suffering and the shame of the cross. Secondly, he says, not only do you see who Jesus is, but see what Jesus did. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. When the holy wrath of the Father, which was meant for you and I, was poured upon Jesus, he did not protest, but he willingly took it so that he might save us. And so Jesus, the sinless Son of God, suffered for sinners. He took our sin, though he knew no sin, so that we, why, might be made the righteousness of God in him as we are clothed in his righteousness. That is what we mean when we talk about Jesus' death being a substitutionary atonement for sin. The sins he bore were not his own because he was holy. He was sinless. He did not commit any sin, as Peter says. But he took upon the sins of his people. And so he suffered the shame of the cross in order that we might die to sin As Peter writes, that is to say that we might die to the power of sin and the penalty of sin and one day the presence of sin in our lives because it has all been canceled by the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we die to sins, as Peter goes on, we then have the power to live in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ in us. Righteousness that shines forth and proclaims the excellencies of God to the world, even through our suffering as we demonstrate our faithfulness to Christ. And the third thing and final thing that Peter points to when he says, look to Jesus as an example, let the gospel be written upon the contours of your heart. He says, third, we follow Christ's example by seeing why Jesus did what he did. So we see him for who he is. We see him for what he did. And we see why he did what he did. Verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He says, you, we, all of us who are his, 
We're straying like sheep, wandering the wasteland of our own sinfulness to the depravity of our own desires and hearts with no inclination to turn back to God. And then He intervened by His grace. And so through Christ, we who are once scattered sheep are brought together into the pasture of our Lord. Jesus, our shepherd, went out to find us and bring us back to himself. He went out to gather all of God's people. And not only does he bring them together, but Peter says he is the overseer of all the souls of his people, of all believers. That is to say, he is the guardian or the keeper of them. Which means that if you are united to Jesus by faith, then there is nothing to fear. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ, including whatever suffering and shame this world might try to place upon you. It cannot separate you from your shepherd. As the Apostle Paul asked the Romans in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God or the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is why Peter could tell the Roman slaves, listen, endure, endure the unjust suffering because they were already part of something that was far better than the sorrows of their lives. They were held in the hands of a shepherd who had suffered for them and knew their suffering, and he now watched over their souls for all eternity. And for that, they then do have a living hope, a salvation secured, an unfailing inheritance in Christ Jesus. As Jesus himself even says to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, it is the faithful suffering of God's people that changes this world. When I started, I mentioned the fact that many people often read accounts like we see here in Peter and even Paul, where they're, he's, they're addressing, the biblical writers are addressing slaves, and, and they wonder, why aren't they just overthrowing slavery explicitly here and condemning the institution of it explicitly as we've looked, there are reasons why that isn't the case. But the biggest one is simply this. Is that God's ways of redeeming this world are not our ways. God uses lives conformed to the gospel 
ultimately to subvert the evil and ungodly social structures of this world. And eventually, eventually, every evil institution will crumble, as did slavery, because it did fade away. And you know who led that change? It was God's people. It was the church. We know that from history. You see, through one soul at a time, as people witnessed through their faithful suffering about the mercy of God, hearts and minds were changed as they bore witness to the suffering of Christ and the suffering of His people. And that is how the kingdom of God overcomes the kingdom of this world. There are still many institutions we know of evil in this world, but they will not stand. They are coming down because Christ has already suffered. He has already died. He has already won the victory for his people. The church of Jesus Christ will prevail. Hell's gates cannot prevail against it. They will be overcome. But not with a sword yet through the suffering of God's people. And so then, let us trace the gospel on our hearts, being reminded of it every day of our lives, looking to Jesus, seeing Him for who He is, our holy Savior, the Son of God, looking to Him for what He has done, how He has redeemed us, how He suffered for us, how He healed us by His very wounds. And by looking to why He did it, we could not save ourselves. We were wandering sheep, and yet He, the good and gentle shepherd, the overseer of our souls, brought us back to Himself. That's a Savior we can faithfully follow, is it not? Indeed it is. And so let us faithfully follow Him, no matter what this world may say and try to do to us, let us continue to look to Him as He writes that gospel upon our hearts. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We're thankful for the promised victory that is already ours in Christ. We're thankful that You are redeeming many back to Yourself even in this hour. And You will continue to do so until that day when the very last one of Your elect becomes Your child and our King returns forever and puts to an end the very presence of sin in this world and makes a new heaven and a new earth where we will rejoice with no more sorrow or suffering or nights, where every tear will be wiped away, where the lowliest of the low will be lifted up to worship you at your very right hand. We praise you for this, Father. Help us to have the courage to continue believing, to continue walking faithfully and step with Christ our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.